Welcome to the Ponder New Podcast. I'm Pastor Rob Myalis, and this season, we're going to look at the granddaddy of them all, Paul's letter to the Romans. And I'll share why in this podcast, why I've been sort of terrified to ponder anew this, uh, this letter to the Romans with you, but why a book that I read on a very long plane ride convicted me and said, no, we need to address uh, this letter to the Romans for I think in the end it really forces us uh, to ask and answer the question, is Christianity not only helpful but necessary for us to have life together in this increasingly small and diverse global context? So without further ado, let's get pondering. servant of Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, the gospel concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for the sake of his name, including you who are called to belong to Christ, to all God's beloved in Rome who are called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed throughout the world. For God, whom I serve with my spirit by announcing the gospel of his Son, is my witness that without ceasing I remember you always in my prayers, asking that by God's will I may somehow at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you so that I may share with you some spiritual gift so that you may be strengthened, or rather so that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as I have among the rest of the Gentiles. I am obligated both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. Hence my eagerness to proclaim the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, It is God's saving power for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed through faith, for faith, as it is written, the one who is righteous will live by faith. I confess I've been reluctant to tackle Paul's letter to the Romans or any other letter that Paul wrote. And part of that is just because I prefer thinking and reading and preaching on stories in the Bible. And I find stories easier because there's more right answers. There's more creative takes and and ways to look at a story and see yourself in different characters and even see God in different characters. And I think there's a lot of freedom there. I think it's also helpful for our living um, because 
so often in our own life, in our own sort of narrative of, of how life is working, we get stuck um, by guilt, by shame, by fear, by death, by our pride, um, by lies we tell ourselves. And the stories are in the Bible are about people who also get stuck, but God makes a way forward. And, and I think in those stories, then we can also find a way forward um, as having a sense, a renewed sense, pondering anew how God might be active in our lives. So I have a sort of um, a predisposition uh, for, for sort of narrative over maybe propositional truth. And Paul's letter to the Romans has a lot of propositions. And I feel that I can get it wrong in Paul's letter to the Romans. There's been so much ink spilled over what Paul actually meant. Like even in the letter to Peter, one of the Peter letters, it already kind of says, you know, people have been misunderstanding Paul. So uh, really early on, the church has um, known that sort of uh, Paul um, can be misunderstood. But I do want to study this, um, this book in part because it's just going to be the epistle or um, letter readings this summer for many churches. So you'll be hearing it. Also, because it's just aesthetically beautiful. I mean, there are certain points you're like, this really is an intellectual tour de force. It's just brilliant. Um, furthermore, although it is at points hard to understand what Paul's uh, getting at, I think a lot of the questions that Paul wrestles with are issues that we're still wrestling with today. And uh, lastly, because every reformation of the church, and I think we're again in need of a reformation, has had its genesis seemingly um, in the book of Psalms as well as uh, the letter to the Romans. Uh, Not just the Lutheran Reformation of the early 1500s, but again and again you find people who are sort of doing work of renewing the church, and somehow Paul's letter to the Romans um, was, was open on their bedstand. But all that said, the real reason why I want to read this is because I read a book on this really long plane ride to Tanzania, in which I got this cold, called A Man Called Uva. Maybe you've seen the movie based on it, A Man Called Otto. And without giving it all away, I'll just say at the end of the book, there's this really picturesque neighborhood now that has all these people who are all a little bit goofy, all a little bit broken, and they found a way to coexist. And that's, I think, what a lot of us, um, there's a sort of a conservative um, sort of vision where sort of of unyielding conformity And there's a sort of this liberal vision where somehow we're all in our differences and we're all somehow getting along. And, uh, you know, I'm I'm inclined in in a lot of ways, um, or I find it, I found the story, um, A Man Called Uvo, it was just well written, but really kind of compelling in this vision of people somehow who are different, somehow finding a common ground uh, in in their mutual brokenness. Um, that, that enables them to kind of find grace and acceptance for each other. And, and I find what, why, so why I want to pick up the letter to the Romans is because the book, A Man Called Uva, is getting at sort of a fundamental yearning in our culture. There's a reason why the book takes off. And the fundamental yearning in our culture is to find a way to exist in spite of the obvious um, differences 
and shame and sin that we all have in our lives. So all of us sort of have these two fundamental barriers. One is just we have a cultural framework that's different from one another, and uh, the other is that we all have our own sort of personal baggage, right? So we have cultural and personal baggage, and this prevents us from having life together. Um, but we all sort of want this, like that little advertisement years ago that showed all these people that were disconnected in an apartment, and then one night, this one woman just sets a table out in the hallway and has dinner, and suddenly all these neighbors come out, who again are all different looking and different ages, and they have this, they become companions, they eat together. Um, having lived in a New York City apartment, that never happened to me. <laughs> so again, we, we have this, this yearning, I think many of us, um, not to sort of sort of make everybody conform, but somehow to find this beautiful common ground in which uh, the fact that we're all a little bit different, all a little bit broken, doesn't impede our relationships. And I think it's an open question for us, and a question we as Christians have to be able to give an account for in our culture as to whether our faith in Jesus Christ allows us to make a claim on the universal and to, um, to say to a book like A Man Called Uva, that's what we want, but in fact, that is only possible through Jesus Christ. In other words, when it comes to this sort of world stage of diversity that we live in now, like we all live in a mini Rome of the ancient world. We're all sort of heaped on top of each other in all these different cultures, again, with all of our own sort of personal baggage that prevents us from really having koinonia fellowship with each other. Um, the, the, the dominant or the noisy Christian solution seems to be uh, unyielding conformity that we all have to sort of be alike to each other. And the other way then to think about it is, or we can just be a Christian minority and sort of exist with my own gods and my own faith and my own way of doing things, and this is for me and this isn't for you, but, you know, it works for me. Or do we actually make the claim that the only way to have a diverse society coexist is Christianity? Or the alternative is to do what Rome did, and that is where by military might you just sort of constantly suppress ethnic conflicts and give everybody an economic incentive to get along, right? So, so we can go with money and military, i.e. empire, or we can go a different way, which is cross and resurrection, which is a way of Christianity. And I believe that Paul, in his letter to the Romans, is, is making an argument that we need as Christians to make anew, and that is that, first of all, Christianity is universal. But secondly, Christianity is actually the way for people who come from different backgrounds to find a common ground and live life together under the cross. And, and, I, and I believe this is what uh, Paul is arguing because this is what Paul talks about in his intro. And in any of the Pauline letters, there's always an intro. And in this intro, he acknowledges the Jewishness of Jesus, the particulars. He says, look, God promised Jesus Christ beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. But even before I get to that, just the word Christ, which means anointed, is already a Jewish word, that there would be an anointed, a Messiah. And, and then he talks about how, how Jesus is 
of the descendant of David, right? This ancient Jewish king. So there's a way in which Paul is totally acknowledging Jesus's Jewishness. However, however, Paul says here that this is by the Spirit, the resurrection of the dead, and now there is faith among all the Gentiles. So Paul here makes this move to say, yes, the faith of Christians is grounded in a particular person of a small tribe on the edges of the empire, an ancient tribe, but this has a universal scope to it. And in fact, Paul kind of keeps going here and he'll even say then in uh, verse 8, right, your faith is proclaimed throughout the world. And then he writes, I am a debtor, this is verse 14, to both Greeks and to barbarians. And um, for people that were not Jewish who were living in Rome, the Jews would have almost been barbarians. And not in our way we see barbaric, but just like not part of the Roman citizenry. To the wise and to the foolish, right? to the wealthy and to the poor. Paul here is saying that there's something now that is universal in the scope of what Jesus aims for. And in fact, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Right? This is for everybody here. And lest you think that this is just then, this is what it's going to be like in heaven, Paul makes no mention of heaven, but instead says, for the righteousness of God is revealed through faith, for faith, for it is written, that the one who is righteous shall live by faith. Paul here is trying to say that there is this act of God and Jesus Christ that is opening up the doors for all people to have access to God and, and find a way, and I'll, I'll even argue this more later, but at least we are just here to live, to live with each other by faith. Now you might say, Pastor Rob, that sounds all good, but aren't you forgetting something, especially as a Lutheran pastor here? <laughs> Well, it turns out that uh, Martin Luther, these verses in Romans, especially verse 17, were um, pivotal for him. And he sort of writes later, this is sort of really reflecting on these verses, changed his life and really the course of human history as he came to realize that righteousness uh, was a gift, um, something that was imputed to us, that was claimed for us by God, that God declared us right. There's a lot at this point I could go into theologically, linguistically, historically about why that discovery or that insight made sense, what its implications were. But I'd rather at this point take another tact and say uh, Luther is often seen, especially in terms of how he understands this part of Romans, with, within a sort of a camp of theologians that emphasizes uh, guilt and forgiveness, sort of this Western consciousness of mind that is foreign to many shame and honor cultures, either historically or present, um, that there's too much in a focus on the individual act of salvation rather than sort of the, the cosmic scope. And, and, I, and I think that's uh, a fair uh, critique of Luther on the one hand. On the other hand, I'm not sure how much we can really ever strip away from somebody who lived 500 years ago their sense of community or honor and shame. I mean, to say somebody who grew up in the Middle Ages wouldn't have been conscious of honor and shame dynamics is ridiculous. And if you actually read Luther, it becomes pretty clear once you start looking for it that honor and shame are deeply part of his uh, vocabulary.
But, but regardless, I, what, what I want to actually get at here then is to say that the individual salvation, the, the um, encounter with God's life-changing love, when we realize what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, I believe that this isn't just something um, that is part of a sort of a more corporate salvation. But I, I would actually say that verse 16 and verse 17 are necessarily bound. Because you can't have verse 16, which is where Paul talks about the universal here, that this salvation is really for all people, without having uh, individuals um, come to terms with God's graciousness in their lives. And you can't, and if you just have individuals, verse 17, without 16, individuals then uh, think that this salvation is just about them and sort of getting out of hell and getting into heaven. And, and I think that there's something far richer there where, where and this is what Paul is going to get at throughout the letter of the Romans, is the way in which sort of this, this tribal deity, no, in fact, is the universal. But Paul is also going to connect the personal encounter that we have with the living Lord with something greater, far greater than ourselves. And, and so if you think about then, like what, what really are the ways in which we can understand our own religion in this sort of soup of religions and, and cultures that exist? Well, one way is we can actually view it as an empire project. And I think many Christians do, that they want um, to sort of have their view sort of imposed on other people, sort of by force. I think that's foreign to Paul's thinking because I don't think Paul could have conceived of a world in which Christians would have had power in the early empire. I don't think that's the way he understood things. Um, and, and I don't think that's really what Paul wants is the imposition of sort of um, Torah law on other people. Um, the second thing is that we can just entirely privatize religion and say, this is my faith, this is my God, this is what I want. And I don't, I don't think that's what Paul has in mind either. I think Paul really wants to say that there's an alternative to an atomized, so highly individualistic world where we all do our own thing, privatize faith, as well as a sort of like an empire. I think Paul is going to really push forward this image of Christianity as, as fundamentally the fabric that can unite us all as people. And getting back to sort of the corporate and the personal, you know, go back to that, a man called Uva, where everybody's kind of getting together at the end. There really isn't a way for us as humans to get along, to, to, to deal with all this stuff and to really accept other people's brokenness, I would argue, until we know that God has actually graced us. In other words, Luther's fundamental question is, where can I find a God of mercy? That may not be our question. Our question today might be, how can we all live together without killing each other? But I don't think we can actually live together without killing each other until we all recognize that life is a beautiful gift and that all that I have yeah, is a gift from God. So I, I think actually we don't finally get away from the question uh, of mercy. Again, because the, the corporate salvation, the universal aim of what God wants is so closely um, necessitates the transformation of individuals that we might actually live together. So hopefully this gives you some, some insight, some opening questions. There's so many ways to think about what Paul writes here. Um, I'm definitely not the last or even the first word on this, but what I wanted to get at today um, 
was this tension that Paul's going to lay out or this dialectic between the tribal of the Jewish, Jewish sort of tradition and the universal of, of God's salvation for the whole world as well as this sort of this individual sense of sort of what God has called me to do and how God encounters me with the, the more corporate and again ultimately universal um, sense of God's uh, love and, and communion for all people.